part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. Today's teaching is by Pastor Daryl Ruiz. If I were the devil, if I were the prince of darkness, I'd want to engulf the whole world in darkness, and I'd have a third of its real estate and four-fifths of its population, but I wouldn't be happy until I had seized the ripest apple on the tree, the. So I'd set about, however necessary, to take over the United States. I'd subvert the churches first. I'd begin with a campaign of whispers. With the wisdom of a serpent, I would whisper to you as I whispered to Eve, do as you please. To the young, I would whisper that the Bible is a myth. I would convince them that man created God instead of the other way around. I would confide that what's bad is good and what's good is square. And the old, I would teach to pray after me, our Father, which art in Washington. And then I'd get organized. I'd educate authors in how to make lurid literature exciting so that anything else would appear dull and uninteresting. I'd threaten TV with dirtier movies and vice versa. I'd peddle narcotics to whom I could. I'd sell alcohol to ladies and gentlemen of distinction. I'd tranquilize the rest with pills. If I were the devil, I'd soon have families at war with themselves, churches at war with themselves, and nations at war with themselves until each in its turn was consumed. And with promises of higher ratings, I'd have mesmerizing media fanning the flames. If I were the devil, I would encourage schools to refine young intellects, but neglect to discipline emotions, just let those run wild. Until before you knew it, you'd have to have drug-sniffing dogs and metal detectors at every schoolhouse door. Within a decade, I'd have prisons overflowing. I'd have judges promoting pornography. Soon I could evict God from the courthouse, then from the schoolhouse, and then from the houses of Congress. And in his own churches, I would substitute psychology for religion and deify science. I would lure priests and pastors into misusing boys and girls and church money. If I were the devil, I'd make the symbol of Easter an egg and the symbol of Christmas a bottle. If I were the devil, I'd take from those who have and give to those who wanted until I had killed the incentive of the ambitious and what'll you bet? I couldn't get whole states to promote gambling as the way to get rich. I would caution against extremes in hard work, in patriotism, in moral conduct. I would convince the young that marriage is old-fashioned, that swinging is more fun, that what you see on TV is the way to be. And thus I could undress you in public and I could lure you into bed with diseases for which there is no cure. In other words, if I were the devil, I'd just keep right on doing what he's doing. You may recognize the voice. Anybody know? Paul Harvey. Famous for the rest of the story. He could have said it yesterday, but he said it in 1964. The devil seems to be getting his way in more ways than one, isn't he? Make no mistake, we are at war. But it is, first and foremost, a spiritual war, is it not? 
The war also isn't a way out there somewhere on foreign soil war. It's a right here at home, so to speak, war. Paul knew what maybe you're figuring out, that we can render our very own troops useless before they even hit the battleground. If you were the devil, where would you attack? Satan's crafty, isn't he? He doesn't wait to face us out there. He can get us tied up in here. Then we never even make it out there. Amen? If I were the devil, I'd start with, Paul Harvey said, the churches. That's where I'd start. Now that I'm uh, in the military, someone said after a recent sermon, you'll have now more than just football illustrations for us. And uh, I take that as a compliment. Military terminology is often fitting for the church. Paul was, for us, what you might call a forward observer. Have you ever heard that phrase? A forward observer, Paul steps onto the field of battle. He goes what in the military we call downrange. And he goes before us. Paul scouted the enemy and sent back critical intelligence for our success. For the success of our army, so to speak. The first thing he realizes is that we are all too often taken out of the game by friendly fire. Uh, If you're not a Christian here this morning, do you know that God has given you the right to judge, in a sense, His own worth by the evidence you'll find right here among His followers? If you are a Christian, that should scare you to death. It should humble you. That's why I think after three chapters in the letter to the Ephesians on what God has done for us in Christ by his grace, Paul looks at us, the church, and says that our first response to God's great love and his grace to Jew and Gentile alike, our first response to God should be to preserve the unity of the brethren. Could have went anywhere. Called upon the weight of his position, not not as an apostle, but as a prisoner of the Lord, and said, protect the unity. And in chapter 4, he unpacks it in general and then gets very specific. Um, Some of us might wish that he would have started with a, go get them, boys. Head on out, conquer the world. Um. In hindsight, that might have been an easier challenge for us instead of having to deal with each other first. Go get them. Now, why don't we get things right, right here? Because whether we like it or not, whether you know it or not, church, they know it, that right here is going to make or break what happens out there. He gives the lost world that permission. The war for the glory of our king starts right here with a battle at home. If you have your Bible, grab it. Turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to scan you through chapter 4 for just a moment, and we're going to finish this chapter today. We ended in verse 24, but I'm going to catch you up because I want you to see Paul's argument from the words of our forward observer. Ephesians chapter 4. This won't be on the screen. Just 
follow with me in your Bible. There's Bibles under the chairs if you don't have one. When we get to 25, it'll pick up on the screen. Just listen if you don't have your Bible. Paul says now, after declaring the glorious grace of our God, to Jew and Gentile alike, here's now how you live, Christian. Verse 1, chapter 4, you walk in a manner worthy of your calling. You walk in balance with which grace does not get seen out of proportion. You, you tip the scales to balance with your walk, the grace that God has extended to you. You walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Verse 2, how do you do it, Paul? You do it with things like humility, number one. He doesn't go anywhere else. Make no mistake, he starts with humility. You want a cross-reference? Go to Philippians chapter 2. The example of Jesus Christ. Have this attitude in you, which was also in who? Jesus Christ. What was the attitude? It was, in a word, the attitude of humility. That he condescended from heaven, took on the form of a man, not just any man, but he lowered himself to rock bottom as far as you can go, lifted himself up onto a cross. He got so low that we can't do anything but elevate him, and God will do that one day. That's our example, Philippians chapter 2. Humility, gentleness, patience. Show tolerance for who? One another. That's the body. We are the one another. Don't miss the phrase at the end of verse 2 because I think it's the theme of the whole chapter. We do it in love. What are we trying to accomplish, Paul? Verse 3, we're trying to accomplish the preserving of the unity of the Spirit, this bond of peace, he calls it. That has been achieved by us? No, it's not been achieved by us. It's been achieved by God himself. Verse 4, look at the facts. We are one body. It's not an option. We are of one spirit. We are called with one hope. Verse 5, because there's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. Verse 6, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all, in all, in all, in all. Nothing gets left out. Verse 7, and Jesus himself, who is the victor in the battle, he takes the spoils of war and he disperses them to you and I. And we all get individual jobs and gifts and abilities. For what purpose, Paul? Verse 12, for the equipping of the saints. For the building up of who? Just you? Just me? No, the body of Christ. Verse 13. How do we know when we were being successful? When we are attaining to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God is changing us. We're becoming obedient by the one we know. In a phrase, we become mature men. What does it mean to be mature, Paul? End of verse 13. We start looking like, like Christ. The measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Maturity is in a person. It's Jesus Christ. We start to resemble him. Start to resemble him. All of us together. Um, Christianity is not a is not a individual sport. It's a team sport. One preacher said there are no long ranger Christians. We we don't do this thing on our own. God has designed it to be in community that we expand his kingdom in this world. You don't get to play this game by yourself. You have to deal with your teammates. You have to. You can't play alone. 14, as a result, we're no longer 
like children, tossed to and fro here or there, getting beat up by the waves. The doctrines that come at us like uh, winds of the sea will stand strong. The trickery of men, they won't trick us. The craftiness of men, it won't escape us. The deceitful, scheming men of this world, they won't throw us off course. That's what it, that's what it means to be mature. How do we get there? We get there by speaking the truth to one another. And then he gives a caveat back to verse 1. How do we do it? In love. There's wisdom in love. Remember, we went 1 Corinthians 13. And we defined, as Paul did in 1 Corinthians, what love is. You've heard it in every wedding. What is it? You could run through the list right now. That's, that's what it means to speak the truth in love. So then we're fitted together. Everybody doing their job, verse 16. Each individual part is a part of the whole body so that we can all grow up for the building of itself. What's the phrase? Somebody see it? End of 16. Once again, in love. 17. So this I say and affirm with the Lord that you walk no longer like you used to. You used to be Gentiles, but you don't act like it anymore. What God is doing is unifying us and we don't act like we used to anymore. What does that mean? It means that you used to be ignorant. He says in verse 18, you were darkened in your understanding. You were excluded from the life of God. You were ignorant to his rules, to his laws. Why? Because you had hardened your heart, end of 18. Not only that, but we had hardened our heart to a point where we could feel no pain. That's what the word callous means. We were insensitive to anything God would have through his spirit to say to us. We seared ourselves off to God. That's who we were. Paul would say in Romans, but thanks be to God that he found a way in through grace. Well, 19, we've become callous because we've given ourselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity. And we don't just practice the impurity. We do it with greediness. We crave after it. We go the extra mile for it. That's who we used to be. That's not who you are anymore. 20, here's the turn. You didn't learn Christ in that way. That used to be you, but you don't walk that way anymore. If you have heard of him, verse 21, you've heard Jesus and you've been taught of him. Why? Because truth is in a man. Truth that pulls us out of the darkness, that gives us understanding, that doesn't make us ignorant, that doesn't keep us separated from God anymore. Truth has been revealed in a man, in a, in a person, in Jesus Christ. Truth is in Jesus. And so, 22, in regard to your former way of life, you lay it aside. You take that old man, like that old coat, and you toss it to the side. You don't just hang it in your closet. That's not the picture that Paul's painting here. That you can grab it on a bad day or on a lazy day. You take that garment and you burn it, is Paul's point. It's gone. You don't wear it anymore. You get rid of it. That's what it looks like to walk no longer as a Gentile. You throw it off because it's being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Your flesh will lie to you and tell you that those things are still true about you when God says they're not. So you cast it off. Cast it off. Where does the war begin, Paul? Verse 23, it begins in the spirit of your mind with a daily renewal of what's true about me. What's true about you? What does God say is true? 
That's what's true. It starts in the spirit of your mind. 24, so what do we do now? We don't just take off the old garment. We've got to put on the new self, which is in the likeness of God. We get things like righteousness and holiness, and it all comes from truth. 24, we put on the new self. 25, here we are. Thank you, Paul, for the general description of what it means to walk as a new man in Christ. There's this old garment and we take it off and that, that's a great picture and this new garment and we put it on and that's a cool image and a cool picture. But I'm, I mean, give me some meat, Paul. Be a little more specific here. What does it mean, this, this, this great fanciful image of casting off the old garment and putting on the new? I mean, that sounds great. But what do I do Monday? And so he gets very specific. Here we are, verse 25. Lay aside for one, falsehood. I think it's interesting that he starts here with an attitude of lying. Satan is said to be the father of lies. He lies. That's what he does because that's who he is. It's his nature to lie, just as it is God's nature to be truth. And so he tells the truth. It's Satan's nature to lie. And when we were walking by the way of the Gentiles in our old nature with that old garment on, we were like our old father, weren't we? We told lies. For example, Paul says, we don't lie anymore. We don't deal in shadows. We're not shifty. That's not us anymore. Specifically, he's going to talk about how we deal with one another. We're still talking about the body here. We're still, we're still fighting the battle at home. What do we do, Paul? Well, for one... Let's be straight with one another. Let's tell each other the truth. Let's not hide things. Let's not deal falsely. Let's not give false testimony. Let's not, let's not make someone feel better than maybe they ought out of lies. Let's not do anything deceptive. Let's not deal in falsehood. Instead, and this should be in all caps in your Bible, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor. It comes from Zechariah, Old Testament. What ought to be true of me, Paul? The things God's always been saying are righteous and holy. Those things ought to become true of you. They show who you are now. The law gets fulfilled in your life. You don't get to escape it and put it to the side because grace has come in. No, grace now frees you up and allows you to do what you always were supposed to do but could not when you were a slave to sin. What do we do? Well, we do what he's been telling us to do all along. For one, we, we deal in truth. We're not like our old father anymore. We're like our new father. We speak truth, each one, with his neighbor. Uh, circle that word with, because although Paul quotes this from the, uh, the Greek version, the Septuagint of Zechariah, this word with is not with in, in, in that translation. It's the word to. He changes the preposition here. It's not with his neighbor. It's to his neighbor. I think he gets more personal here. I think we get more of the flavor of how we deal with one another. We speak the truth with one another, not just to one another. There's more about relationship here. We're in this together. It's a with thing. And so we deal with each other in truth. That's what the new man looks like. For we are members of one another. That's the rationale. Uh, one of the early church fathers, 
uh, I would tell you his name, but I never can pronounce it well. Christendom, how do you say it? Beth? Christendom? Christendom? Yeah. He said it like this of this verse. He said it would, be, uh, it would be like our eyes seeing a snake and then lying to our feet that there is no snake there. He went on to explain that, that that really does you no good, does it? Because they're your feet. And so for your eyes to see it and you to be deceptive to the, the members of your own body to not deal truthfully, well, that gets you nowhere. It gets you bit, doesn't it? Do you suffer? Yeah. Does the foot suffer? Sure does. But do you suffer as well? That venom travels through the body. We deal in truth with one another. And, verse 26, what do we do about this other monster that creeps up? Be angry. Can we be angry? Can we justifiably be angry at sin and wrong and evil in this world? We sure can. Was Jesus angry? When he was in the flesh, he sure was. Could he handle that? Did the anger get the best of him? It didn't. He was perfect in all ways. Can we handle anger very well? Paul's advice to us is going to be, listen, you have a limit to when anger is righteous and when it becomes sin. And you know what? Let's just be honest. We're not very good at it. We run headlong into sin very shortly after getting into anger. So can we be angry? Can we, can we refuse to acquiesce to evil in our day? Absolutely. Can we stand our ground? Absolutely. But be careful. Why? Be angry and yet do not sin. It's another quote, another Old Testament quote. The law does not go away. God's word does not perish. Psalm 4.4. 4. And he adds something here, verse 26. Be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. What does Paul know about himself? What does he know about us in our humanity? In our residue of flesh patterns. What does he know? That we're not, we're not Jesus quite yet. And very often anger gets the best of us. What happens when you lay down and put your head on that pillow and you let that anger sink in and simmer and boil? It bursts out, doesn't it? And very often, it doesn't just burst when you're all alone. It, it explodes on someone else. And the shrapnel invades all those within arm's reach. Is this just about you? No, it's not just about you. We're talking about the one another right here. We don't deal falsely. We don't let anger get the best of us. Uh, in Psalms, it says that we lay in our bed and we, we get to a point with anger where we can lay our head on the pillow and we do not tremble. It means that we can, we can sleep in peace. That's what he's talking about here. You deal with it. Don't let your even righteous anger fester to the point where it becomes bitterness. Can that happen in the church? It sure can. Someone wronged you and you're justifiably correct in that they did something wrong to you. You may be right about that, but you can take that now, righteous anger, and let it fester, and now it becomes something more. And before you know it, that cancer is not just eating you up, but it's spreading in the rest of the body. That's not, that's not what this is supposed to be anymore. We don't walk that way anymore. 
Look at what he says here, verse 27. If we let it go, we give the devil, and my translation says an opportunity. The Greek word is tapos. We get words like topography, topical. If I preach a topical message, it means it's not a system. It's not a connected line of messages. It's a one-time deal. If you look at the topography, you see what that land looks like. It could more literally be translated that when we let this happen, we give the devil a place. We give him somewhere to stand in here. So you let that fester. You let that happen. You deal falsely with one another. And you let that, you let it go. What happens? Satan says, I'll, I'll, I'll step in that door. And he may get his toe in, in your heart, and then a foot. And then he's got both feeted. And now he has a place in the body of Christ. Is that going to cause some damage? Will he enjoy that? He sure will. Will he look for those openings? He sure does. Do we have to fight to preserve the unity to keep those doors closed? Each one of us has to fight that battle. We're responsible. Keep that door shut. 28, he who steals, here's another one, must steal no longer, but rather he must labor. It's not just the ideal that you go take something off the Walmart shelf. It's the idea of being a freeloader. It's the idea of not being willing to pull your weight, to do your job. It's the idea that, that you are going to impose upon the grace of the rest of the body of Christ. And you're going to say, by grace, you pay my way. And you're not willing to work. You're especially not willing to work hard. And Paul says, that's not how it should be. In the body of Christ, we don't let that kind of thing happen. We're not going to impose upon one another. We're not going to, in extremes, we're not going to steal. We're not going to take what another guy has worked hard for because we're lazy. In fact, we're not just going to work. What does he say? He who must steal, steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his hands what is good. You, you very simply, you got to get a job. And you got to do your part. That's what putting on the new self looks like, for one. And you can't be a freeloader in the body of Christ. Um. It doesn't stop there, though. Look at what he adds at the end of verse 28. So that you will, in addition, have something to share with one who has a need. Do people have needs? They do. Do we share? We sure do. We sure do. What's the goal here? It's not just that you get a job, but it's that you are able to work with your hands to the point not that you just satisfy your own needs, but God says, how about we have a little extra so that we can... Help those who actually are in need. That's what it looks like to put on Christ. That we're not just looking out for who? Number one, we're also working so that we can look out for each other. 29, here's something else. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That, that term unwholesome could also be translated very simply rotten. Let no rotten word come out of your mouth. Now, let's be clear. That doesn't just mean that you don't use four-letter words. Paul's talking not just about foul language right here. 
So if you've checked off in your heart that you've quit saying some of those words you've used to say, that's good. But there's more than that here. Remember, this is all about the one another. It's all about the fact that my words can affect you and not just me. So let no rotten word proceed from your mouth, but only, here's what you do let come out of your mouth, that which is good for edification. Just your edification? No, not just your edification. According to the need of the moment so that it will give what? What is the word? Grace. Do you know that your words can dispense the grace that has been bought and purchased on the cross by Jesus Christ? Your mouth, I just got this silly picture of your head being like a Pez dispenser and grace just popping out, and that's stupid. I couldn't get it out of my brain for there just a second. But you are to be a dispenser of God's grace with your very words. Don't be rotten, church, in the words that come out of your mouth. It's, it's the word rotten there. It's the word that uh, uh, we get sap from. And something that's, uh, I don't know the exact word. It's some, uh, 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 something that attaches itself to a tree or a plant that is sapphoric, it means that it, it sucks out the nutrients. It doesn't just put poison in, but it sucks the nutrients out. And that thing dies. We don't speak in a way that sucks the body dry of its nutrients. That's cancerous. Your words are to be a dispense of God's grace. So what are you, what are you saying out there to each other, about one another, about me? Why are you laughing? Is it edifying, church? It should be. That's what it means. Thank you, Paul. To very practically put on Christ. It's not rotten. It's for edification. It's for the need of the moment. That means that you pay attention to your words. How many of us just spout out whatever decides to come out with no thought, not just to, is it, Hear me now, is it truth? But is it, is it truth for now, for the need of the moment? Maybe it's truth for a need of the moment in five minutes or in 10 minutes. Are you walking in the spirit of love that puts the other people ahead of you, that, that does more than just says, whatever I want to say here, I'm going to say. No, walking in the spirit means that you don't get to control what comes out of your mouth. Someone else gets to decide. No unwholesome. Verse 30, what do we do? When we participate in such things, and Paul, I'm sure, could go on. I think it's no mistake that he keys on some of these things, but make no mistake, there are more on his list. But verse 30, he seemingly overwhelmed. He says, you know what we do right here when we let these things happen? We grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, Uh, I'm going to ask that you just sit on that for the rest of the week because the weight of that thing, we don't pay the Holy Spirit enough attention, frankly. But listen to me now. God, the Father, planned your salvation. Jesus Christ provided for your salvation. The Holy Spirit is in charge of now producing the fruit and the ramifications of what God planned and Christ produced and earned on the cross. The Holy Spirit now has the task the job, the role to in us and through us play it all out. 
So it makes perfect sense is that when we're keeping on that old, nasty, stinking, rotten garment and living out that way, that the Holy Spirit would hate it, that he would be grieved. Charles Spurgeon wrote, wrote a sermon on this very one verse, and he just went on and on and on about how the Holy Spirit, not just the Father, not just the Son, but how the Holy Spirit loves you. And when you understand how much the Holy Spirit loves you and what he's done for you and what he's willing to do for you and how he wants to live out through you, you know what? You will do the right thing. You'll not not have a heart to grieve one that loves you. If you know someone loves you to a depth that you, you can't even fully comprehend, the worst thing that your heart could do would be to grieve that one. Amen? We don't grieve the Spirit. We don't want to give the devil an opportunity, and we don't want to grieve the Spirit. Incidentally, I didn't tell you, but back in verse 27, that idea of uh, giving an opportunity, it's, uh, it's a play off of another verse that's found throughout Scripture in different places. Uh, Romans twelve nineteen is one of those places. Let me just read it to you here. Never take your own revenge. Let me back up and give you the full idea here. Never pay back evil evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at, what's the word? Do you know? Peace with all men. Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. You know what uh, that word, leave room? It's leave tapas, leave a place for the wrath of God. He'll do his job for it is written, quote, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. Guess what? It's not your job to repay even if it's to repay evil. That's not your job. You know what you do when you set yourself up as judge and jury in another person's life? You take the place that is reserved for God. It's his tapas. And when we leave that door open in a negative way, guess what? We say, Satan, you can have the place. You can have the place. It's not only is it us taking God's place, but we usher in Satan to take his place. In the process, verse 30, we grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. 31, summary remarks here by Paul as he closes the chapter. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Put away. Along with all sorts, all kinds, any type of, in one word, maliciousness. Whatever, whatever points towards the direction of malice, it's got to go. It's got to go. Instead, 32, what do we do? These last couple verses are bookends. I don't know if you notice this. At the beginning of the chapter, we get some of the same words. Be kind. Be kind. Does that just mean we do good things? It doesn't just end there. We don't just, we don't just do kind things on the surface. He doesn't stop there. Look at what he says next. Be tender-hearted. Be soft-hearted. You can't just do kind things and it not be in your heart. Let this sink in, church. Be kind. Be tender-hearted. He goes a step farther. We forgive each other. It's a parallel to the verse before. Instead of being bitter, we're kind. Instead of being wrathful, we're tenderhearted. Instead of being angry, we're forgiving. You see the comparison? 
And when we forgive, guess what? It ends right there to the glory of God. But there are more words in the previous verse, aren't there? Because when we end at anger, it doesn't end. What do you get after you got a guy who decides to be angry and then bitter? You get him clamoring. You know what it means to clamor? It means to run around with a pot and just bang your drum about what you don't like, about so-and-so over here or so-and-so over there. It's a clamoring that's loud for everybody else to hear. That's what you get when you let anger go. But it doesn't just stop there, does it? After clamoring comes all-out slander. All-out slander. And so now you're not just complaining, but you're pointing the finger and you're saying, look at this guy. He did that. He did this. Is that the route we go when we put on Christ? It's not. We did not learn Christ in that way. These are some things we don't do anymore. If you need specific examples. What does it mean to take off and put on? Here you go. We're kind to one another. Tenderhearted. Forgiving each other. Just as. Oh, look at the key. Just as. Do you need an example, church? Because you have one. The ultimate supreme example always comes back to the cross. And it always comes back to Jesus. Has Jesus asked us to do anything, to go to an extent that he has not already gone? He sure hasn't. Look at the example. Understand Paul's argument. You can do this because God in Christ also has forgiven you. Is that enough? That's enough. That's enough. Because he's forgiven me, did he have to forgive me? Justifiably so. Did he have to extend grace? No, that's, that's the definition of grace is that I don't deserve it. God is not obligated to forgive you. Do you know that? He's not obligated to forgive you. He's obligated to judge you in his righteousness and holiness and to slam the gavel down and declare you guilty. His righteousness causes him to be obligated to declare you a sinner. But grace, but grace comes along and God says, I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to do something even though I'm not obligated to do it. Paul's argument then, how much more then for you who aren't perfect, who've been forgiven yourselves, who God has been kind and tenderhearted and forgiving to you, how much more then should you be willing and obligated to forgive those around you who aren't perfect either? Well, that just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? And so, Chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, it's the end of his thought here. And uh, I hope you know that in, uh, in the original writing of the uh, scriptures, there were not chapter and verses, etc. We've done that to help us understand. This is, uh, I think, what Luther called not a pretty division right here. It's not a good place to end the chapter because verse 1 and 2 of chapter 5 is the concluding thought. Therefore, Based on God's kindness towards you and him forgiving you, therefore, be imitators. You could also translate that word imitators. Mimic. Mimic. Mime. Act like. Therefore, based on what God has done for you, here's the command. Act like God. Mimic God. Imitate him. Even if you don't, Even if you don't think you have it in you, act like you do. Imitate God as his beloved children. The point there, I think, being that you are children now of your father and you do what your father does. 
You imitate your father. Sons do what the father does. Daughters do what the father does. We're his children now. We're his children. And walk in love. Paul, chapter 4, verse 1, how do we walk in a manner worthy of our calling? 5, verse 2, we walk in love. You catching a theme here? How many times in love is sprinkled into this passage? What do we do? What's step number one of how we deal with this body and this battle? We walk in love. Just as, and he beats this dead horse, just as Christ also loved you. And not only that, he showed you what love looks like. Well, I don't know. I don't know what that means. I don't know what love means. I'll tell you what love means, because Christ showed us. Look at it. He gave himself. He offered himself. He sacrificed himself to God. But who was it for? Did you catch the phrase? For us. This is a one another kind of thing. You're not just playing this game solo. You've got to consider the guy next to you. What does love look like? If I'm supposed to walk in love, if I'm supposed to take off the old man, put on the new man, I've got some of these things. I'm starting to see what it looks like. I don't do those things anymore. I start to see that we're all in this together. I can't be like that anymore. I can't be like that. I don't want to give the devil an opportunity. I don't want to grieve the Holy Spirit. I need a model of what walking in love is, Paul. Here it is. It's Jesus Christ. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. You walk like Jesus. And he walked to earth, gave himself up, humbled himself to the point of a cross, gave himself as an offering and a sacrifice to God and became what would be called in the Old Testament a fragrant sacrificial aroma, a sweet-smelling incense rising from the cross, filling the heavens. Listen to what one soldier said. Many will argue that there is nothing remotely spiritual about combat. Consider this. Religious experiences in combat have four common components. One, constant awareness of one's own inevitable death. Two, total focus on the present moment. Three, the valuing of other people's lives above one's own. Four, being part of a larger community. Those of you who have been in battle, are those things true? They sure are. Should they be true in the church? They should. Most of us, he went on, including me, would prefer to think of a sacred space like the church as some light-filled, wondrous place where we can feel good and find a way to shore up our psyches against inevitable death. We don't want to think that something as ugly and brutal as combat could be involved in any way with the spiritual with the church, but it is. However, would any practicing Christian, he says, say that Calvary's Hill was not both a horrific battleground and at the same time a beautifully sacred place? It was. Why don't you bow your head? And I'm going to give you just a couple concluding thoughts to think on. While I close here, why don't you give the Spirit room? Why don't you give Him a place in your heart right now?
Are you surprised when the men and women around you don't measure up? If you are, I dare say that Satan has achieved at least a toehold, if not a foothold, in the door of your heart. Christian, don't be surprised that humans need grace. Kimberly and I would have left ministry a long time ago, and pastors do every day. Had God not given us the peace of knowing that church folk are messy and that dealing with the one another is at least half of the battle of ministry. When you're a church planner, you have delusions of grandeur. You think that they're going to start off with a clean slate, get some solid people together, raise some leaders up, and then you're going to charge hell with a fire hose and you find out you got a half-empty water pistol. In a similar way, I think that when you join a church, maybe you have delusions of grandeur. We think that with a few key ingredients, ingredients that few of you can agree on, by the way, but with just a few key ingredients, we're sure that we'll find the magic recipe to this whole church family thing, and then reality hits. Grace and sacrifices are needed long before we go anywhere. Grace. Sacrifice is needed before we go anywhere. Many of you get surprised by that and become disillusioned, don't you? When all along, a large chunk of the New Testament has this battle, this battle right here as the focus. If I were the devil, I'll tell you what I'd do. I'd make these conflicts right here at home, I'd make them killers. I'd try my best to find room, a place to stand within these walls. I would frustrate you and you would blame it on each other. I would try to keep you from spending any grace on each other. I would make you legalistic. Then when others didn't measure up to your standards, I would help you keep a running account against them. I would help you justify your judgments and minimize your mistakes. Then... I would sell you on Burger King Christianity. Down the road, you'll find it your way, the right way. And I would have you convinced that you having it your way is more important than the unity of Christ's body because after all, you're right and being right justifies everything. And now, because there are more churches than hamburger joints, you can easily move on. And I, Satan, call that a win. Is Satan crafty? He sure is. He sure is. You know what rises to the throne of God like sweet-smelling incense? Like the offering, the giving, the sacrifice of Christ as a fragrant aroma? You know what rises to the throne of God? Like that kind of sweet-smelling incense? Here it is. It's the hard, living sacrifice of the saints. Remember, Sacrifices, by definition, give themselves up and they die to themselves. They look like Jesus. They look like the cross. They sound like the gospel. They smell like worship to God. So here's your, here's your question to ponder as you stare at the floor or think deep into your heart. When God leans over this church, when God leans over your life, my life, 
Does he smell something sweet? The smell of your life being consumed, burned up for one another? Or is there just a rotten, selfish stench? When we were singing, I I had this thought occur to me. That as I, uh, I sat down because I was just humbled by the words we were singing. I thought, well, what do people think when they see us bow our heads or fall at our knees and raise our hands? Here's a thought I had. I fall at his feet because he lets me stand in his presence. Isn't that amazing? Why are we humbled by Jesus Christ? We're humbled because He gave. He offered. He sacrificed. He sets our feet on a rock. We, we get to stand boldly before Him in Jesus Christ. Church, how dare we then force men to their knees, tear them down, Put things upon them that, that Jesus Christ has lifted from them. We don't use the altar in this place enough. Ricky's going to sing here in just a moment. Why don't you take, take time to uh, hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying. Give Him space. Use this altar. Would any of God's people be willing to repent this morning, finding a place on their knees before all of heaven. Would any of God's children be willing to cast off whatever pride holds you back? Would any of God's children give, offer, sacrifice? If I were the devil, I'd tell you what I'd do. I'd harden your heart right now. I'd give you every reason sit right where you are and leave just the way you came. Take just a moment to listen to the Spirit before we sing. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.